Hello, I'm Pat O'Mahony and welcome to a very special series of five Media Curious Off-Message podcasts in conjunction with JOLT, a project coordinated by the Fujo Institute at Dublin City University, funded by the EU's Horizon 2020 Research and Innovation Programme. JOLT is a perfect fit for off-message as it's investigating the challenges facing modern journalism and how best to harness digital and data technology for news. So, over these five JOLT off-message podcasts, I'll be chatting with some of those currently undertaking JOLT projects to find out more about their cutting-edge research. In this first episode, my guest is Dimitri Batoni, who's looking into the role of surveillance, both by and of journalists. Dimitri, how are you? Uh, I'm good, Pat. You're in where? North, where? What part of northern Italy are you in? Uh, I'm in my hometown, Bergamo, ah, which is okay. a city that became, let's say, kind of infamous during the pandemic. At the of beginning course. of the pandemic. So of course, yeah. I managed to come back to my family few months ago okay after a long time okay dimitri let's let's cut to the chase let's talk about your jolt project what's it about so my project is about uh security and surveillance in journalism uh i used to work as a journalist as a foreign correspondent based in turkey uh between 2015 and 2018 and then I decided to start this PhD as a way to explore uh, new interest in my, in my profession, but also as a way to um, solve some issues that emerged during that uh, experience. What brought you to, uh, if you don't mind me asking, what brought you to Turkey, Dimitri? Uh, basically, I fell in love with the country uh, when I was around 19. Uh, I did a trip with a friend of mine there that lasted like 40 days. Uh, but back when I was studying during my master here in north of Italy in a city called Verona, um, I had the chance to move to a foreign country as part of the Erasmus Project Exchange Program. And uh, basically, Turkey was my first option. I thought that it was... So we're talking about 2011 here. I thought mm. that it was... Uh, potential interesting country the path to become a European Union member and so on I did not expect what came afterwards uh, but definitely I was both lucky and well good enough to foresee that Turkey was becoming a topic of interest for all over the world basically when you say you didn't expect what was coming next what came next uh, well, back uh, starting from 2013 and onwards, the country started to experience this authoritarian drift that put the um, democratic institutions uh, under a very strong uh, challenge. So nowadays we can't say that Turkey, at least I can't say that Turkey is a fully democratic country anymore, even though not probably not even before it was let's say, that's solid in terms mm. of democratic institutions. 2016, there was an attempted coup. Uh, I was there, so I had um, uh, fighting jets and tanks in the streets all over my head. So it was a tough experience. And afterwards, the, the situation became increasingly difficult for journalists to work in there. 
so that's why I started to look um, at this issue of security and surveillance from a very different and also personal perspective. While you were there working as a journalist, did you feel that you were under surveillance some of the time, all the time? Uh, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a difficult question to answer because the, the true answer is that you never know. Mm. Um, sometimes I think that journalists find themselves too much valuable in the sense that surveilling somebody is an expensive thing. Okay, so every time you, you need to ask yourself, am I worth the money? Uh, is my job worth the money? And most of the time, I guess the answer is no. Still, uh, surveillance has, uh, in, in terms of, in, in its relationship with journalism, has two main purposes, let's say. One is to find out what the journalist is working about. So it's stories, sources, because journalists quite often have connections that are of interest for other parties, including mm -hmm. state institutions and so on. So this level of surveillance is mostly invisible and you will never realize that you were spied upon. Okay. But then there is another phase of surveillance, which is, I'd say, scarier because it implies that you need to know and is related to the chilling effect of it. So when somebody probably you are investigating about, so let's think about, I don't know, criminal organizations mm. who have the money to engage with these kind of activities or uh, state institutions who are not... Uh, transparent with their own citizen and so on. Then, um, if somebody wants you to stop doing that investigation, they will let you know. But they will let you know in very subtle ways. You, you know, but you don't know, you're not sure, you constantly start looking around you, you start mm. to fear for mm. yourself, but yeah, also yeah. for your family and so on. In that case, you, you face another, um, another phase of surveillance, let's say. But there is a third one that I started to explore during my research and is the fact that surveillance has, okay, this Orwellian, let's say, shadow that we all know also thanks to the literature, movies and so on. But unfortunately also because of uh, sad um, news that mm, from time to time pop up in the, in the news feed. You probably read these days about the um, NSO uh, Israeli I was going company. to ask you about, yeah, I was certainly going to ask you about NSO exactly. in, in the last while and uh, uh, how that has uh, impacted Yeah, we, we will definitely research. talk about that. Yeah. The, the thing is that surveillance, we, we need to start to consider surveillance not as just as a threatening uh, element in our society, but our societies do actually work through surveillance techniques and a surveillance culture. And I will give you an example. Uh, COVID uh, was a clear uh, impulse to develop new approaches, new technology, new surveillance technologies. A lot mm -hmm. of countries develop uh, or attempted to develop uh, phone applications in order to track the contagion and so on. But also journalists used new technologies to report about COVID. So, uh, these technologies can be threatening, but sometimes can be also helpful in our job. 
So my, my research tries to explore both the, the ways, both the, the, the positive and the negative side of surveillance. It's interesting you say that because I was going to suggest to you that surveillance is part and parcel of a journalist's armory. It's a tool that journalists themselves use a lot. Is that part of your research? Definitely, in the sense that um, journalists are generally curious about technology and they tend to implement whatever piece of technology uh, they can put their hands on if that technology helps them to do a better job. Uh, mm. So let's think about drones, for example. We have these little or not so little machines flying over our heads nowadays. Well, journalism started using drones uh, to not just for shootings and nice videos and so on, but also to, uh, for example, be in places where it's dangerous to be in person, like war zones and so on. Mm -hmm. um, the point about this technology and the way journalism uses it uh, is that are we ready to use it and are we aware of the consequences in the sense that uh, this technology can be quite intrusive. Uh, journalists, according to my experience, tend to sort of justify themselves in saying, well, I'm, I'm doing my job because I, it's a public service, okay? My, my aim is to inform the public, to help the public understand what's going on in their lives and so on. So somehow they feel sanctified to, to use these... Um, this sort of equipment and technology, but I felt that there is a lack of uh, thinking in terms of where are the red lines, uh, what mm. am I allowed to do, and what where should I stop? Uh, because right. let's think about social media. Okay, social media are a gold mine of information. Uh, I spoke, for example, with journalists investigating organized crime which is a huge problem all over the world. Uh, here in Italy, we are experts of it. And <laughs> a, a lot of journalists use social media as a way to integrate the investigations because social media allow to explore the social network of somebody. So mm. if this person is uh, a member of a certain mafia clan or so on, probably they tend to hide their relationship maybe with politicians and so on. But through social media, you can harvest a lot of information. For example, maybe you find a picture of a party where this person you're investigating about was, has gone to, and, and suddenly you see other faces, okay? Mm. And you see yeah, other yeah. politicians sitting next to, to him or to her at the same table. Um, it can be very precious, but the truth is that it can be also quite creepy because you are actually exploring other people's lives without them knowing, um, without, like, like, probably without their consent and so on. Mm. So as journalists, we need to think about this and to constantly draw these lines. Okay, up to this point, I'm allowed to do that because it's part of an important investigation. But at a certain point, I will need to stop. Um, for example, when I'm meeting or finding information about people that I find not relevant to the investigation and so on, family members who are not, mm, who doesn't have any fault in relation mm, to, gotcha. uh, to, to the actions of the other family members and so on. 
minors and so on. Um, sure. So it's it's a difficult task, I think. And in my research, I try to push the journalists I interview to, to reflect about these issues from the ethical perspective, from the deontological perspective. Mm. I think it's something that is needed in the field of journalism. What about... Um... I remember when we were making Reporters at War, a documentary series about war journalism in back in 2003 for Discovery. We interviewed a correspondent in Jerusalem for one of the major US networks. And uh, we also followed her during the day as she worked and she went to do a live report from where there had been some security incident. And she said to us, you see here, guys, I am. There's live TV cameras pointing at me. Everyone around me can see those live pictures. They know where I am. Yeah. The thing is that as a journalist, you are constantly torn apart between the need of transparency, Mm -hmm. because transparency is a way to build up a solid relationship with your audience, with your public. And you need to prove that you are working um, according to the highest possible standards. Mm-hmm. And in that sense, you need to be visible. Uh, you need to be open. You, you need to disclose yourself and your methods, your uh, how you perform journalism. But on the other hand, you also need secrecy because you need to protect your sources, your contact, and quite often during specific uh, investigations, you cannot be transparent, otherwise you're going to ruin all your work. Um, and it's a constant uh, need of finding the balance between the two needs, you know. Mm. I, I wonder if that balance is even ever possible. No, it, it's, uh, it's a never-ending job in this mm. sense. Um, I will give you another example. I, I interview a journalist who is under police protection since now four years uh, because um, her colleague was killed uh, by a criminal gang. Uh, They were doing an investigation in Slovenia. And so she said to me, well, now I got used after a few years to know that I have police around me and most of the time I don't know they are there. They just pop up from time to time asking, is everything okay or not? Uh, whenever I go to public events, I need to notify the organizers that the police will be here protecting me. So I am under surveillance, but this is a safe surveillance for me. Mm-hmm. Like it, it makes me safer. It makes my friends and family members safer. So in this sense, it, it's a good thing that is happening to me, even though sometimes... Uh, I feel uh, constrained, like, I don't know, you, you you hang out with your partner, with your friends, and you don't know if actually there is somebody looking at you or listening to you. Um, but this is another side of the story, you know. Uh, most of the time, journalists uh, experience the, the dark side of surveillance. And it's it's a pity when you find out that the, the very institutions that are supposed to protect you and protect your job uh, are actually, um, let's say, uh, snooping in, in your in your professional and private life as well. Mm, mm. 
give me a time frame on this. So when did you um, start the project and um, what did you hope to find? What, what were the hunches that you had? Okay, I started this project back at the end of 2018. Um, as I said, it, the, the idea stemmed from my uh, personal experience as a reporter in Turkey. Uh, when I figure out that, okay, um, the way technology is developing is going to shape uh, the environment in which journalists operate. But we don't have to worry just about state surveillance, which is, of course, uh, the main threat for journalists nowadays, and that is confirmed also uh, from the, the early findings I, I, I collected from my, from my interviews. But there are also other actors that can or might engage in surveillance activities targeting journalists. I mentioned, for example, um, uh, criminal organizations who have the money to uh, hire people or buy equipment or engage themselves. And they have also a sort of history of spying on journalists who are, mm. uh, you know, uh, uh, working on, on their on their uh, on their side. These are journalists who are trying to expose their criminal activities. Exactly, exactly. So if you are trying to expose criminal activities, then you should expect that the criminals will fight back. And mm. surveillance is one of their weapons, let's say. Um, but also private companies. For example, I had another journalist who was investigating money laundering uh, through cryptocurrencies. Uh, so crypto companies based in Switzerland mainly uh, who are dealing with, uh, let's say, non-licit uh, business. Mm -hmm. And so these companies are tax savvy. Like they know what to do if they want to. Uh, understand to, to which point the journalist has understood their business. Uh, so he found themselves not only having like attempts to having his laptop hacked, but also people outside his house. Okay. Wow. Um, okay. So surveillance can be creepy online because there is a like the online world has a lot of information flow that is not visible to our eyes so we don't actually know what's going on in our phones in our in our computer and so on but surveillance can take also very visible forms like people staring out of the like through your windows at home mm -hmm. while you are sitting at mm -hmm. home mm -hmm. uh, during dinner time with your family it can be uh, deliberately intimidating or it can be more subtle Exactly. As I told you before, depending on what's the purpose, mm. if the, the surveillor is in, intending to steal information from you, that probably you will never notice. But if the, the person wants you to stop doing your job, then uh -huh. it, yes. it, it will make it visible and threatening. Mm. What research did you plan to do? Obviously, back in 2018, no one had heard of coronavirus. So what did you plan to do and how did it go how is it going are you are you still doing it so basically what i planned to do was to conduct interviews with journalists and not just journalists but also like photographers photojournalists and cameramen and so on um, based in two countries italy and turkey which were selected not just because i'm italian and i worked in turkey but because for the for this kind of research, you need to be familiar with the context, okay? So starting from two countries that I was familiar with was the easiest way to go deeper into the, mm -hmm. the understanding the phenomena rather than just scratching the surface. 
Um, in these interviews, basically, I, I ask journalists on one hand, uh, what are their experiencing, experiences in terms of threatening surveillance? So understanding when it happened, how it happened, who did it involve, and um, uh, was it online, offline, and all these pieces of information that I pulled together in order to try to, to get the bigger picture and understand what coming next, what's coming next. Okay? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, but also the second part of the interview is about uh, their habits in using surveillance technology while performing their jobs. So, for example, um, uh, where do you store your data that you collect? Uh, where are your red lines we spoke about before? Um, do you give access to your data to the people you collect data from? For example, what are your protocols and your rules in place? Uh, where are your ethical standards and, and so on. And this is a very interesting conversation because I noticed that most of the journalists I spoke uh, with never thought about that. So they, uh -huh. they used our interviews as the first chance to think about it. So in this sense, this research is helping the journalistic community to approach this issue in a more thoughtful way. Uh, of course, COVID uh, was a <laughs> it was a heavy, heavy, heavy burden on my shoulders because, you know, talking about surveillance is not an easy thing. Some people experienced difficult, tough situations, a lot of stressful situations, scary situations. Mm -hmm. So, for example, I, had, I decided to offer them free legal assistance, but also free psychological support in case they wanted, uh, which is something... I think not very common in academic research. Okay. Yeah. 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 But but given that I had experience as a journalist myself, I thought, well, that's what I would like to be offered if I was to get interviewed. You know. Were you thinking that by telling their stories, for possibly the first time, that in itself, after telling them, they may need care. Well, first of all. Um, regarding legal advice, uh, if you are telling openly telling me the story, you might refer to uh, people, organizations, institutions that were uh, targeting you with surveillance, okay? Um, of course, I'm anonymizing all the data, so I take care of um, all the collected data in order not to damage the reputation mm -hmm. of the participants. But you never know. I felt that, okay, in case this interview will give you headaches or you will find yourself in need to understand, am I allowed to tell you this? Or it can turn out to be a bad thing for me. Can mm -hmm. I be taken to court or so on? So now you have a lawyer that can reassure you on where are the, the, the red lines for you, okay? What you can tell, what you cannot. And in case... You, you receive a file, you, you, you receive a complaint, then you have somebody to talk about and understand what's the next move for you. Did you offer them this advice before the interview or after you had interviewed them? No, I generally uh, forward some documents before starting the interview. And in these documents, it is explicitly said that you are entitled to hmm. ask for legal advice or psychological care uh, in case you want it, in case you feel the need of. Um, 
then generally before starting the recording what I do is asking is everything okay clear understood do you remember that in case you need so I remind the participants this possibility mm. so far nobody asked about that okay okay so it's probably an extra layer of um, safety nobody needed that so far but I felt it's also part of the trust building process you know mm. it, you are, you need to earn the trust of the person you interview. So offering this is also another another brick that you put in in the wall. You know. Yeah, yeah, and trust on a project like this s- strikes me as being vital. Yeah, exactly. Because we were talking about COVID, you know, and the the main problem with that is that I couldn't meet my interviewees in person. Mm. So I had to conduct these interviews online, which adds another layer of problems in the sense that you already experienced being surveilled back in the past. And now you are telling about your experience online through a website or an application and so on. So by definition, the online environment is not perceived as safe by these people. Of course. Um, I needed to put all the care I could in setting up the safest um, environment as possible. Mm. Uh, but of course, uh, you, you need to realize that in this way, you don't have everything under your control. So, for example, if I'm interviewing somebody in another country, uh, I cannot guarantee this person that the laptop or the phone that he or she is using is absolutely safe. Uh, I cannot guarantee that there is a third party, a third person listening to us. I can put all the safety measures in place, encryption, um, using the safest applications that we know as journalists, like Signal and so on. Mm-hmm. But the, the truth is that at the end of the day, we need to accept that there is always this, a small chance that somebody can peer into our conversation. And I think that it, it was um, clear from the fact that Almost nobody of the interviewees chose the safest application possible, which is Signal nowadays. Uh, they were fine with other applications like WhatsApp or uh, Zoom platform, which is known not to be the safest option out there, you know. Mm-hmm. But I, I think that everybody, as a journalist, you, you come to a compromise between your own safety and the headaches that taking care about your privacy and security gives you every time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, I hear you. Where are you now on the project? Um, what, what stage are you at? Okay, I almost finished collecting these interviews. Um, and I already started analyzing the, the, the findings in these interviews. Um, what kind of analysis are you doing? So it's basically mostly content analysis and network analysis uh, in the sense that of course the 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 experiences that i collect from these um, media professionals uh, are not interesting just because of the the events they 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 speak about but also the way they speak for example uh, it, it is important for me to pay attention to the emotional level mm. uh, because it it uh, it explains a lot uh, how surveillance impact the work of a journalist 
but also the private life in the sense that um, I push them to recall the feelings, the sensations and the emotions they experience while they realize they were under surveillance or they imagine they were under surveillance mm, mm, Be- yeah. because it is not it is not that important that you are actually under surveillance to to have a, to have an effect on your work if you think or you, if you start to fear that somebody is monitoring you or trying to disclose uh, your secrets your sources and so on then you will you will ch- you will change your your way of uh, working and the kind of change can different a lot from person to person. For example, I will give you a couple of examples. Two journalists uh, working more or less on the same issue, um, the US elections back when Trump was elected. Um, they started receiving phone calls, explicitly asking them to stop the investigations. Uh, okay, mm-hmm. uh, It was about the connections between certain political party in the US and Russia Mm -hmm. and uh, they reacted in very different ways. One of them basically moved into self-isolation because like moving away from the family, from friends as in an attempt to protect them and to build a safer environment to conduct investigation. Another journalist took the opposite path and he moved uh, abroad to like outside of Italy uh, to another European country and he spent months living in a commune with like 15 people most of them engineers um, because he felt safer with people around him mm-hmm. rather than rather than isolate himself almost you know. like hiding in in public view Yes, something like that. Mm. He thought that, well, I, my presence here is not um, a danger for the people around me. The only danger is for my own work. Um, but, but I need the presence of the people to, uh, to cope with the pressure, to cope with the anxiety that is growing inside of me. Um, so you see, like journalists can react in very different ways to these experiences. The interesting fact is that most of the journalists hope to have psychological support during those days. But at the same time, what they told me is that the the best support comes from the presence uh, of colleagues in the sense that if you can share your experiences, if you can protect each other and build a network that makes your profession safer and your your personal well-being more protected by this sort of cocoon that you uh, that you create mm-hmm. uh, by by talking simply talking to to colleagues and friends. Um, this is probably one of the most interesting findings so far because it points out the way we need to move, you know, in order mm. to collaboration, uh, a creation of. Uh, network that can support uh, journalists whenever they need that that is the the way we need to uh, we need to go yeah, that's interesting because I was just about to ask you what have you found so far um what have you found so that has surprised you most so far okay the biggest surprise probably came from the fact that also journalists can be the bad guys in here. I mean, uh-huh. I expected that 
in the sense that whenever you live in a situation and you work in a situation within a highly polarized uh, society, a lot of infighting and clashes between different sides, well, journalists are not uh, neutral elements of the picture. You know? <laughs> a, a journalist not <laughs> Exactly. A journalist lives immersed in, in the society. Yes. Uh, he has opinions, he takes sides, and even though there are ethical rules and deontological norms that guide us, uh, we are still part of the of the picture, you know. So, for example, um, in Turkey, it is not so uncommon that whenever a journalist is taken to court, the prosecutors, for example, in case of uh, the journalist accused of being close to terrorist networks and so on, which is something that happens quite often in that uh, in that country. Um, the prosecutors use elements and so-called, let's say, evidences coming from other newspapers. So, for example, there is a newspaper that is opposing your work because they have a different side, a different perception of, mm. the, of the reality. Uh, it can turn really ugly in the sense that journalists disclosing information about other journalists in order to prove that they are connected to uh, yes. terrorist networks and so on. And it's not just, a, let's say, a harsh dialogue between uh, journalists on their newspapers and so on. As I said, it, it can lead to prosecution. Um, it, it's, it's all connected to the way in which you, you interpret the role of a journalist. If you think that a journalist is the guard of power that needs to keep power in, in check and so on, then you have an approach. But if you think that being a journalist means helping your motherland, helping your country fighting terrorism and so on, then you, you will start doing a different kind of journalism. You know. But there's a whole ethics debate there about objectivity, exactly. neutrality, patriotism, etc., etc. Exactly. But also it happened, for example, media companies owned by criminal organizations who pushed wow. the journalists working in those newsrooms to attack other journalists who were investigated in the business of the criminal wow. organization itself. Uh, that happened especially at local level here in Italy. I, I collected some stories about this. So as a journalist, you found yourself I don't know, investigating on the connections between a certain criminal family and the business in the healthcare system. Um, the journalist had some relatives working in a hospital. So suddenly on another newspaper owned by the very same family, they were reporting saying, well, this journalist is reporting about these issues because he has some interest in the business himself. So this kind of shaming, uh, attacking the reputation of the journalist, revealing that he has family members working in this field or uh, business interested in that field, it's a sort of infight that starts for, for very different reasons. But at the end of the day, is always a way to undermine the, the profession. We mentioned earlier the Israeli cyber surveillance company NSO, um, who have come under scrutiny after an international alliance of 
news outlets uh, have complained that its software is being used to target journalists, dissidents, politicians, etc. Has that revelation impacted your work? Um, I knew about NSO since a long time um, because there were already rumors back in 2016 and so on that the Turkish authorities acquired this um, this technology in order to deploy it against not only so-called terrorists and so on, but mm-hmm. against their they very own citizens at the end of the day. Um, the problem here is that the surveillance industry acts in a very opaque way, okay? Not differently from the uh, weapon industry and so on, okay? So the, the regulations we have and the possibilities of, as journalists to disclose this market and this business that moves around billions of euros mm-hmm. every year um, are, are very uh, uncharted weapons, the ones we have. Okay, uh, because quite often it's it's a gray area between the business of private companies and state institutions. So quite often the, the, the institutions oppose um, the, the rule of secrecy against the, the journalists. Okay. Uh, you, you ask for documents and you receive a denial because, well, it's um, a property issue or it's a state secret issue, so you cannot uh, understand what's going on there. Mm-hmm. Plus, the technology itself is very opaque uh, by definition. What I know and what I can say is that whenever uh, a news like this hit the headlines, like these days, it is sad to say, but it's also a huge positive advertisement for the company. Ah. Because it shows that, well, so then they are truly capable of doing that. So probably they will get new customers thanks to that. The oxygen of publicity. Yeah, exactly. It's mm. still, it, it is important to, to, to bring these issues to the light and it's important to understand that and it's not just an extra European issue. Like now we are talking about an Israeli company, but countries like Italy, um, England, uh, Germany, France, Spain, uh, uh, they all have companies operating in the field. Uh, somehow the situation in Italy got better back in 2016 after another scandal of a company called Hacking Team was founded selling intrusive equipment to authoritarian countries in Asia and Africa, okay? So the regulations since then became a little bit stricter uh, for exporting these materials to non-democratic countries. Mm. But the truth is that these companies always find uh, the middleman. So they sell this sort of um, intrusive software and, and hardware to another company which is based in a so-called democratic country and then from this country to a third country and then to a fourth country and then to a final destination you know so it's very it's very difficult to track it's very difficult to stop it's impossible to stop yeah 
I think it requires uh, a change in the in the mindset of our authorities because the problem here is that state institutions find very uh, convenient to adopt this level of technology because it makes their job much easier, even though it ends up touching the very interest of not only journalists, but every citizen who wants to be active in his, in his own mm, country. Mm, mm. When do you finish your work? When do you publish it? Um, and I suppose, more importantly, what impact would you like it to have? And what impact has it had on you already? Um, okay, let's say, um, talking about journalism in a broad sense, I think that as I said, state surveillance is still the main threat, but I can unfortunately foresee that new actors will pop up eventually in time. Um, it is likely that criminal organizations at some point will start using uh, this sort of uh, technology to fight back against journalist investigations. It's something that we have already seen, for example, in Mexico with cartel groups, uh, cartel drugs, um, using this technology against Mexican journalists investigating mm -hmm. their dirty their business. Uh, so we need, with this research, my, my main aim is to redefine the environment in which journalists operate and so we can sharpen our tools and improve the way we can deploy counter-surveillance, protect ourselves, our job, our sources, and so on. Um, but also, I think that another positive outcome of this research will be talking more about the psychological impact of being under surveillance, which is something that is still not very well understood. Mm -hmm. uh, for example, in determining PTSD, um, uh, surveillance is not taken into account as a positive as a possible um, reason of PTSD. That's for post-traumatic stress disorder. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, which is something that generally experience in, for example, war zones and so mm -hmm. on. But also being under surveillance puts a lot of pressure on your on your on your soul and your head. Um, so in this sense, um, advocacy organizations and news organizations need to understand better the consequences and, and so on uh, and and redraw the the tool set for 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 a safer uh, journalism uh, regarding myself i think that i will continue uh, having one foot in journalism and one foot in academia because i think it's important that these two words keep talking to each other uh, i definitely want to go back to in traditional journalism at some point mm -hmm. But I will constantly work uh, in the academic field in order to better understand what's the future of journalism and how to make journalism safer and, and more productive, let's say. Your research will be, when do you hand it in? When is it published? How will people get to, get to uh, investigate it? So I will um, probably publish it uh, likely toward the, uh, the end of 2022. Uh, but I'm also planning to publish uh, in advance some uh, pieces specifically tuned to um, specific topics of the research. So, for example, uh, one paper related to the impact of uh, surveillance on 
journalism from the psychological standpoint will be published early next year. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm also working on a conference to present it in partnership between DCU in Dublin and uh, Bicocca University in, uh, in Milan. And also I'm collaborating with another organization here in Italy. Uh, it's called OBCT, Osservatorio Balcani Caucaso. It's not very easy to translate into English, but it's basically an organization that monitors uh, southeastern Europe, uh, Caucasian countries, Turkey, Ukraine, and so on. Mm-hmm. And we are building up a partnership between DCU and this organization for a project about um, surveillance uh, and journalism here, specifically in Italy, but hopefully in the future, uh, also including other European countries, in order to promote a debate on the role of journalism, not just in telling the story about how surveillance technology is shaping everybody's lives, but also how to um, use this technology in a positive way to to have journalism more uh, keen on their investigations and so on. And as I said before, uh, the ontological and ethical um, reflection on, on the potential positive outcomes, but also negative outcomes of such technology in journalism. Mm, very good. Dimitri, I, I really do look forward to reading your final presentations. I also think that you have a lot of probably interesting audio interviews with journalists talking about the day-to-day work of investigative journalism that could make for an interesting podcast or radio series someday. It, it could. Uh, we just need to take care of their safety. Exactly. Yes. As I mentioned, uh, it is important that no harm comes from these uh, interviews. Of course. So of course. The anonymization process, uh, it's something that I need to take care of. Course. Of course. A lot. Yes, of course. Uh, Dimitri, thank you very much for taking part in the podcast and chatting to me. It's fascinating stuff. Thank you. Thanks a lot to you. It's been a pleasure. So thanks again to Dimitri Batoni for joining me on this Jolt Off Message podcast to discuss his research into the role of surveillance, both of and by journalists. More information on Jolt and the other podcasts in this series can be found at joltetn.eu. You can also find all these and more media-savvy podcasts and blogs and subscribe to future ones at patomahony.ie slash offmessage. We're Off Message 1 on both Twitter and Facebook. Until the next time, I'm Pat O'Mahony, this is Off Message, and thank you for listening. Music